Chapter Eleven of Virgin Soil, Volume One by Ivan Turgenev, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. These guests turned out to be our old friends Ostrodomov and Maturina. They were both sitting in the small and very poorly furnished drawing room of Markelov's house, drinking beer and smoking by the light of a kerosene lamp. They were not surprised at Neshtanov's arrival. They knew Markelov intended to bring him with him, but Neshtanov was much surprised at seeing them. When he came in, Ostrodomov observed, How are you, brother? And that was all. Mashurina first turned crimson all over, then held out her hand. Markelov explained to Neshtanov that Ostrodomov and Mashurina had been sent down on the cause, which was bound shortly now to take practical shape, that they had come from Petersburg a week ago, that Ostrodomov was remaining in S. province for propaganda purposes, while Mashurina was going to K. to see a certain person there. Markelov suddenly grew hot, though no one had contradicted him. He gnawed his moustache, and with flashing eyes began to speak in a hoarse, agitated but distinct voice of hideous acts of injustice that had been committed, of the necessity for immediate action, maintaining that practically everything was ready, and none but cowards could procrastinate that some violence was as essential as the lancet's prick to the abscess, however ready to break the abscess might be. He repeated this simile of the lancet several times. It obviously pleased him. He had not invented it, but had read it in some book. It seemed that, having lost all hope of Mariana's reciprocating his feelings, he felt he had nothing now to lose, and only thought of how to set to work as soon as might be for the cause. His words came like the blows of an axe, with absolute directness, sharply, simply, and vindictively. Monotonous and weighty, they fell one after another from his blanched lips, recalling the sharp, abrupt bark of a grim old watchdog. He said he knew the peasants of the neighbourhood and the factory hands well, and that there were capable people among them. Ereme of Golopliok, for instance, who would be ready for anything you like any minute. The name of Ereme from the village of Golopliok was constantly on his tongue. At every tenth word he struck the table with his right hand, not with the palm, but with the edge of his hand, while he thrust his left into the air, with the first finger held apart from the rest. And those hairy, sinewy hands, that finger, the droning voice, and the blazing eyes, produced a powerful impression. On the road Markelov had said little to Neshtanov. His anger had been rising, but now it broke out. Mashurina and Ostrodomov applauded him with a smile, a glance, sometimes a brief exclamation, but in Neshtanov something strange was taking place. First he tried to reply. He referred to the harm done by haste, by premature ill-considered action. Above all, he was surprised to find it all so decided, that no doubt was felt, and no consciousness of the necessity of examining into the circumstances of the place, nor even of trying to find out precisely what the people wanted. But afterwards his nerves were wrought upon and quivering like harp-strings, and in a sort of desperation, almost with tears of rage in his eyes, his voice breaking into a scream, he began speaking in the same spirit as Markelov, going further even than he had done. What impulse was working in him would be hard to say. Was it remorse for having been, as it were, lukewarm of late? Was it vexation with himself or with others, or the longing to stifle some worm gnawing within? Or indeed was it a desire to show off before the comrades he was meeting again? Or had Markelov's words really influenced him, fired his blood? Till the very dawn the conversation continued. Ostrodomov and Mashurina did not stir from their seats, while Markelov and Neshtanov did not sit down. Markelov stood on the same spot, 
for all the world like a sentinel, while Neshtanov kept walking up and down the room with unequal steps, now slowly, now hurriedly. They talked of the measures and means to be employed, of the part each ought to take on himself. They examined and tied up in parcels various tracts and leaflets. They referred to a merchant, a dissenter, one Golushkin, a very trustworthy though uneducated man, to the young propagandist Kislyakov, who was, they said, very capable, though over-hasty, and had too high an opinion of his own talents. The name of Solomin, too, was mentioned. "'Is that the man who manages a cotton factory?' inquired Neshtanov, remembering what had been said to him at the Sipyagin's table. "'Yes, that is he,' answered Markelov. "'You must get to know him. We have not tested him thoroughly yet, but he's a capable, very capable fellow.' Eremeyev Goloblyok again figured in the conversation. To him were added the Sipyagin's Kirill, and a certain Mendeley, also nicknamed the Salka. Only it was difficult to reckon on the Salka. He was as bold as a lion when sober, but a coward when he was drunk. And he almost always was drunk. And your own people now, Neshtanov inquired of Markelov. Are there any you can rely on? Markelov replied that there were some. He did not mention one of them by name, however but went off into a discourse upon the artisans of the towns and the seminarists, who would be the more useful from their great bodily strength, and if only it came to fighting with fists, would do great things. Neshtanov made inquiries about the nobility. Markelov answered that there were five or six young noblemen. One of them, to be sure, was a German, and he the most radical of the lot, but of course there was no reckoning on a German. He might turn sulky or betray them any moment. But there, they must wait to see what news Kislyakov would send them. Neshtanov inquired too about the army. At that Markelov hesitated, tugged at his long whiskers, and explained at last that there was nothing so far decisive. Perhaps Kislyakov would have something to disclose. And who is this Kislyakov? cried Neshtanov impatiently. Markelov smiled significantly and said that he was a man. Such a man. I know him very little, though, he added. I have only seen him twice altogether, but the letters that man writes, such letters, I will show you them. You will be astonished. Such fire! And his activity! Five or six times he has raced right across Russia and back. And from every station a letter of ten, twelve pages. Neshtanov looked inquiringly at Ostrodomov, but he sat like a statue, not an eyebrow twitching, while Mashurina's lips were compressed in a bitter smile, but she too was dumb as a fish. Neshtanov tried to question Markelov about his reforms in a socialistic direction on his estate, but at this Ostrodomov interposed. "'What's the good of discussing that now?' he observed. "'It makes no difference. Everything must be transformed afterwards.' The conversation turned again into a political channel. Neshtanov was still devoured by a secret worm gnawing within. But the keener the inward torture, the more loudly and positively he spoke. He had drunk only one glass of beer, but from time to time it struck him that he was completely drunk. His head was in a whirl, and his heart throbbed painfully. When at last, at four o'clock in the morning, the discussion ceased, and stepping over a little page asleep in the anteroom, they separated and went to their respective rooms. Neshtanov, before he lay down, stood a long time motionless, his eyes fixed on the floor before him. He mused upon the continual heart-rending note of bitterness in all Markelov had uttered. The man's pride could not but be wounded. He was bound to be suffering, his hopes of personal happiness were shattered, and yet how he forgot himself, how utterly he gave himself up to what he held for the truth. A limited nature, was Neshtanov's thought, 
but isn't it a hundred times better to be such a limited nature than such such as i for instance feel myself to be but at once he struggled against his own self-depreciation why so am not i too capable of sacrificing myself wait a bit my friends and you Paklin, shall be convinced in time that though i am an aesthetic though i do write verses he pushed his hair back angrily ground his teeth and hurriedly pulling off his clothes flung himself into the damp chill bed sleep well mashurina's voice called through the door i am next door to you good night answered neshtanov and then it came into his mind that she had not taken her eyes off him all the evening what does she want he muttered and at once felt ashamed of himself ah to sleep as soon as may be but it was hard to master his overwrought nerves and the sun stood high in the sky when at last he fell into a heavy comfortless sleep the next morning he got up late with a headache he dressed went to the window of his attic room and saw that markelov had practically no farm at all his little box of a house stood on a ravine not far from a wood a little granary a stable a cellar a little hut with a half tumble-down thatch roof on one side on the other a diminutive lake a patch of kitchen garden a hemp field another little hut with a similar roof in the distance an outhouse a barn and an empty thrashing floor this was all the wealth that could be seen it all seemed poor decaying and not exactly neglected or run wild but as though it had never thrived like a tree that has not taken root well neshtanov went downstairs mashurina was sitting behind the tea-urn in the dining-room evidently waiting for him he learned from her that ostrodomov had gone off on the cause and would not be back for a fortnight and markelov had gone to see after his labourers as may was drawing to a close and there was no pressing work to be done markelov had a plan for felling a small birch copse without outside help and had set off there early in the morning neshtanov felt a strange weariness at heart so much had been said overnight of the impossibility of delaying longer it had so often been repeated that the only thing left to do was to act but how act in what direction and how without delay it was useless to question mashurina she knew no hesitation she had no doubts as to what she had to do it was to go to k beyond that she did not look neshtanov did not know what to say to her and after drinking some tea he put on his cap and went off in the direction of the birch copse on the way he fell in with some peasants carting manure formerly serfs of markelov's he began to talk to them but did not get much out of them they too seemed weary but with an ordinary physical weariness not at all like the feeling he was experiencing their former master according to them was a good-natured simple gentleman but queerish they predicted his ruin because he didn't understand how things should be done and wanted to do things his own way not as his fathers did before and he's too wise too you can't make him out do what you will but a good-hearted gentleman if ever there was one neshtanov went on further and came upon markelov himself he was walking surrounded by a whole crowd of workmen from a distance it could be seen that he was talking and explaining something to them then he gave a despairing wave of the hand as though he gave it up beside him was his bailiff a dull-eyed young man with no trace of authority in his bearing this bailiff continually repeated that shall be as you please sir to the intense annoyance of his master who looked for more independence from him neshtanov went up to markelov and on his face he saw traces of the same spiritual weariness he was feeling himself they exchanged greetings 
Markelov began speaking at once, briefly though, of the questions discussed overnight, of the impending revolution. But the expression of weariness did not leave his face. He was all over dust and perspiration. Shavings of wood, green strands of moss were clinging to his clothes. His voice was hoarse. The men standing round him were silent. They were half scared, half amused. Neshtanov looked at Markelov, and Ostrodomov's words re-echoed again in his head. What's the good? It makes no difference. It will all have to be transformed afterwards. One labourer who had been in fault somehow began entreating Markelov to let him off the fine for his mistake. Markelov at first flew into a rage and shouted furiously at him, but afterwards he forgave him. It makes no difference. It will all have to be changed later on. Neshtanov asked him for horses and a conveyance to return home. Markelov seemed surprised at his wish, but answered that everything should be ready directly. He went back to the house with Neshtanov. He was staggering as he walked, from exhaustion. "'What's the matter with you?' asked Neshtanov. "'I am worn out,' said Markelov savagely. "'However you talk to these people, they can't understand anything, and they won't carry out instructions. They positively don't understand Russian. The word part they know well enough, but participation. What is participation? They can't understand. And yet it's a Russian word too, damn it! They imagine I want to make them a present of part of the land.' Markelov had conceived the idea of explaining to the peasants the principles of cooperation and introducing it on his estate, but they resisted. One of them had gone so far as to say in this connection, There was a pit deep enough before, but now there's no seeing the bottom of it, while the other peasants had with one accord given vent to a profound sigh which had crushed Markelov utterly. On reaching the house he dismissed his attendant retinue and began to see about the carriage and horses and about lunch. His household consisted only of a little page, a cook, a coachman, and a very aged man with hairy ears, in a long-skirted cotton coat, who had been his grandfather's valet. This old man was forever gazing with profound dejection at his master. He did nothing, however, and was scarcely perhaps fit to do anything. But he was always there, crouched up on the door-sill. After a lunch of hard-boiled eggs, anchovies, and cold hash, the page handed the mustard in an old pomatum pot and vinegar in an eau de cologne bottle. Neshtanov took his seat in the same coach in which he had come overnight. But instead of three horses they only harnessed two. The third had been shod and lamed. During lunch Markelov had said little, eaten nothing, and had drawn his breath painfully. He had uttered two or three bitter words about his property, and again waved his hand as though to say, It makes no difference, it will all have to be changed afterwards. Mashurina asked Neshtanov to take her as far as the town. She wanted to go there to do some shopping. I can walk back or else get a lift in some peasant's cart. Markelov escorted them both to the steps and said vaguely that he should shortly come for Neshtanov again. And then, then, he shook himself and plucked up his spirits again. They must come to a definite arrangement. That Solomin should come too. That he, Markelov, was only waiting for news from Vasily Nikolaevich and then it only remained to act promptly, since the peasants, the same peasants who did not understand the word participation, would not consent to wait longer. Oh, you are going to show me the letters of that, what's his name, Kislyakov, said Neshtanov. Later, Markelov replied hurriedly, then we will do everything, all together. The carriage started. Be in readiness, Markelov's voice was heard for the last time. 
he was standing on the steps and beside him with the same unchanged dejection on his face straightening his bent back clasping his hands behind him diffusing an odor of rye bread and cotton fustian and hearing nothing stood the model servant the decrepit old valet all the way to the town mashurina was silent she only smoked a cigarette as they drew near the barrier she suddenly gave a loud sigh i'm sorry for sergei mihalovich she observed and her face darkened he's quite knocked up with worry remarked neshtanov i think his land's in a poor way that's not why i'm sorry for him why then he's an unhappy man unlucky where could one find a better fellow but no no one wants him anywhere neshtanov looked at his companion do you know something about him then i know nothing but one sees it for oneself good-bye alexey dimitrich mashurina got out of the coach and an hour later neshtanov was driving into the courtyard of the sipiagin's house he did not feel very well he had spent a night without sleep and then all the discussions the talk a beautiful face peeped out of a window and smiled graciously to him it was madame sipiagin welcoming him on his return what eyes she has was his thought end of chapter 11